Hello and welcome to the Archbishop's Corner. This is where we meet each week to talk with Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair about faith, morals, the life of the church today, and how the gospel makes sense in an ever-changing world. This is where we go to find the answers to our lingering questions about the teachings of the church, living the faith life of a Catholic in contemporary society, and developing a stronger relationship with God. I'm Father John Gatzak, with many questions that you and I will ask Archbishop Blair as he responds to what matters to you in the Archbishop's Corner. Does God ever seem distant to you? Well, no matter how you feel, God is real. To mature your friendship, God will test it with periods of seeming separation, times when it feels as if he has abandoned or forgotten you. But God doesn't leave you. He has promised repeatedly, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. God admits that sometimes he hides his face from us. This is a normal part of the testing and the maturing of your friendship with God. Job said, I go east, but he is not there. I go west, but I cannot find him. I do not see him in the north, for he is hidden. I turn to the south, but I cannot find him. But he knows where I am going. And when he has tested me like gold in a fire, he will pronounce me innocent. So now tell me, how do you praise God when you don't understand what's happening in your life and God is silent? You do what Job did. Tell God exactly how you feel. I can't be quiet, said Job. I am angry and bitter. I have to speak. This sounds like a contradiction. I trust God, but I'm wiped out. Regardless of circumstances and how you feel, hang on to God's unchanging character. He is good and loving. He is all-powerful. He notices every detail of my life. He is in control. He will save me. Circumstances cannot change the character of God. Trust God to keep his promises and remember what God has already done for you. In the Archbishop's Corner is where Archbishop Leonard Blair shows us how to trust in God with a reminder to remember his promise to you, I will never leave you. So thank you, Archbishop Blair, for inviting us into your space, into the Archbishop's Corner. How are you today? Just fine. Thank you. And I understand we have a guest with us. Do you want to introduce our guest? Well, he's not a guest in the sense that he's uh, an intimate part of our Archdiocesan family, and that is uh, Auxiliary Bishop Juan Betancourt. Miguel Betancourt. Bishop Betancourt, welcome, welcome to the Archbishop's Corner. It's good to have you with us today. Thank you very much, Father John. Good to be here. Well, we, we begin Lent starting uh, on the first Sunday of Lent with two bishops. So this gives us an extraordinary opportunity to talk about several different things from several perspectives. And Bishop Betancourt, your expertise is in Scripture. So uh, we look forward to a beautiful discussion on the gospel passage for today, in which um, which is very important for our beginning in the whole journey of our, our Lenten spirituality today. But before we get to that, let's talk about the fact that tomorrow is the Feast of the Chair of St. Peter, the Apostle. Can maybe both of you talk for a minute regarding the reasons we celebrate this feast? It's kind of a strange name for a feast, the Chair of St. Peter. And how does it relate to, to today's society, for instance? Well, it's no stranger than calling the bishop's church a cathedral, because uh, cathedra in Greek uh, gives us the word cathedral. It means it's the place where the bishop's chair is or bishop's seat. You know, the seat, uh, sometimes we still even in civil language talk about the county seat, that means it's the uh, place of, of, the, of the government authority. And in the case of uh, the church, it means of the, the bishop's responsibility and role to teach the faith, uh, to uh, shepherd or govern the church, and to preside at the liturgical life of the, arch, of the diocese. So uh, the chair of St. Peter, the, the, the seat, 
is is a symbol of this uh, of this authority that that he exercises as bishop of Rome, and in, in that sense, uh, with a special uh, place in in the life of the whole church. And therefore, the the bishops of the church would share in this authority and responsibility uh, on this feast. Well, we get into a theological point there. Maybe the bishop can help me, but we don't share in the pope's authority. Each of us has uh, our episcopal authority by ordination. Uh, so it's not like he confers it upon us, but it can only be exercised really in communion with the fullness of the College of Bishops, of which uh, the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, uh, is the successor of St. Peter, is head of that of that College of Bishops. And if you go to Rome, you know, anybody been to St. Peter's, you look at that huge Bernini sculpture at the uh, in the sanctuary, uh, it is of a, a great uh, chair being upheld by the Fathers of the Church. And that is meant to uh, to depict uh, this uh, spiritual reality of the chair of St. Peter along the lines that I, I described a moment ago. As a matter of fact, on Ash Wednesday, Pope Francis celebrated the Ash Wednesday Mass at the altar of the chair. Yes. It's interesting, too, you know, that, uh, that when a bishop is installed in a diocese, the, the, the actual uh, moment of installation is when he's led to the chair in the cathedral and is seated there. I have to laugh, some bishops pop up too quickly after being seated because they want to, you know, uh, greet or, or acknowledge the people. But it's proper to sit there because it's being seated there in the cathedra of the cathedral uh, that represents all that I, I have said about the, the role responsibility, first of the apostles and then of their successors, the bishops. It's a wonderful opportunity to have pictures taken and to have that picture with the, the new bishop sitting in his cathedra be in the newspaper, for instance. It's also nice in that big ceremony to be able to sit down for a minute. <laughs> Very practical, as a matter of fact, true. Uh, tomorrow is also what's called Be Humble Day. It's a day to practice humility and reflect on what it means to be humble. Maybe I can ask both of you for um, an ex explanation as to what does it mean to be humble? Well, I like that. Um, I didn't know about it, that tomorrow is, you know, the day. Father Gatsack's always finding these things that no one else has ever heard of. <laughs> well, you know, it's um, humility is the foundation of all the virtues, right? So we cannot even have prudence if humility is not there. For, for a Christian life, the one who follows Christ, you know, that he's the meek and humble of heart. That's the, that's the way to begin with, you know, being humble about it, acknowledging that God gives us the grace to follow him and to do everything that we do, especially the good that we do with his, you know, with his grace. My favorite definition of humility, of being humble, is the one that St. Teresa of Avila gives. Humility is to walk in truth, which um, I was explained when I was a young seminarian, that we give ourselves to God and with all the talents that he has given us and the weaknesses that we have, but we put everything at God's disposal so he can consider us and use us as his instruments, you know, for good in the world. So being humble is actually knowing oneself uh -huh. and knowing what talents we have, what weaknesses we have, and not be deterred by anything, but being real about who we are and keep following the Lord in that truth. So um, people try to, to confuse sometimes humility with being humiliated, right? Uh, and then the sense of false humility come in. 
But um, the Christian way of seeing humility is acknowledging everything that we have, uh, we have gotten from God as grace, the skills that we have, also the, the areas for growth, and putting that into God's hands and, you know, follow Jesus more closely. I think some people think if, if I receive a compliment, say somebody says, oh, Father, you know, I like your homilies, and, and I say back to them, oh, they're just ordinary, they're not anything special. Some people think that that's being humble. Would you think that that's humility? Or, as you said, Bishop, humility is knowing yourself, knowing both your strengths and your weaknesses, and accepting and acknowledging when somebody pays you a compliment instead of trying to destroy that compliment as they give it, just acknowledge it and thank them for the compliment. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I agree. Because um, people are right, right to say, you know, to acknowledge, you know, what, what, graces or skills we have, you know, given by God and also, you know, helping God in, a, in acquiring and also developing those skills. And also there's a sense there that um, gratitude is to need to be acknowledged, you know, as a way of charity. When people give thanks or a compliment to us, we should acknowledge that. And sometimes, you know, in my, in my own parish, I would have say, I would say when I would hear that, Father, that was a very good homily today. And I would say, well, praise be Jesus, yeah. right? But what part do you like most? Uh-huh. And I think it comes also from the sense of, you know, if the ministers are preaching from the heart and, and making the Word of God available to the people of God, that's a skill. Also, that's a grace, and that's how Jesus touches hearts. So anyway, yes, we should acknowledge that. And, and it's not being humble. It's just like walking in the truth. That's a true humility. Well, let's take a look now at the road to happiness in life, and this is where we examine some of the wisdom of Pope Francis that is drawn from the Pope's writings. I'll read a short portion of the Holy Father's address, and then we'll ask both of you to perhaps comment with your own thoughts and reflection on what Pope Francis has said. This is taken from Pope Francis's address delivered on October 26th of 2013, and is called, Come to Me, Families, and I Will Restore You. Pope Francis says, Dear families, the Lord knows our struggles. He knows them. He knows what weighs us down. But the Lord also knows our great desire to find joy and rest. Remember, Jesus said that your joy may be complete. Jesus wants our joy to be complete. He said this to the apostles, and he says this to us today. So this is the first thing that I want to share with you tonight, and it is a saying of Jesus. Come to me, families from around the world, so says Jesus, and I will give you rest so that your joy may be complete. Take this word of Jesus home with you, carry it in your hearts, share it with your families. Jesus invites us to come to him so that he may give us joy, so that he may give everyone joy. Your thoughts? Well, of course, uh, this is a question of joy, you know, of true happiness, uh, joy. And uh, Jesus said to the apostles, and he says to us, that he gives us this joy, not as the world gives it, but he gives us the joy that really only he can give. The God-given gift is the one that that really is authentic, that counts. And, of course, the whole life of Jesus and everything he preached and did and his dying and rising is all about the true path to to joy and and happiness. To use one of the images of Scripture about the the paths, you know, the two paths, the different kind of paths we walk on. If we walk that path, we will will be joyful. And here's a case where the Holy Father is applying it to the family. Uh, You know, if you live family life the way... The church has borne witness to it and preached it and taught it and lived it uh, from the gospel, then you will experience joy. To use another phrase of Pope Francis, if you, if you want to choose the worldly path, if you're filled with worldliness and you let the artificial uh, joys of the world be your, uh, your goal, uh, then you're not going to be very joyful or happy at all. 
so it's really about uh, embracing the gospel, embracing a life of faith, and uh, walking that together as a family. Bishop Betancourt, I'm thinking that there are many families today that are struggling because maybe dad or mom or both are, are out of work because of the COVID-19 pandemic, or one of the, the kids are not going back to school for in-school learning. They're trying to learn by way of distance learning, and things are difficult in the family, and there's perhaps they're missing this joy. Do you have any recommendations for parents today who are struggling trying to find joy in the family? Well, actually, Father John, this is, you were describing what's happening, you know, um, to my to my sister and brother-in-law. Uh-huh. Both actually work, and they have now both kids at home. And at the very beginning, when school closed, they found they found themselves struggling very very hard you know it was a very difficult moment for them because they have to take care of the kid you know the both kids and yeah. my nephew has special needs so that actually takes care of more time and more attention so it took them uh, you know a few months to to get adjusted but in the meantime they experienced a lot of struggles and difficulties even even in their relationship as well mm-hmm. right so it was very good that they shared that with me and i was able to accompany them and, and actually help them you know go through this a little bit in the way that i could you know the best thing is just kind of talking about it and expressing where they're at you know with their feelings and you know and and expressing the disappointment and the sadness of you know going through this difficult moment of the pandemic but that was the first step for them to kind of see things in a different perspective and also it was an opportunity for them to go back to to god you know in the sense that even with the impediment of not going to church every Sunday because of the pandemic and having to, you know, watch the mass on on live stream, you know, mm-hmm. in different from different places. But they found a way that they could actually work together, acknowledge that there was some challenge and some pain. And then after talking about it, they, they come up they came up with a plan. It was still challenging at the very beginning. But then, you know, with the help of also, you know, I would say prayer and a lot of, you know, support from, you know, in conversations with friends and relatives, you know, they, they're, they're now in a much better place. Still, there's some struggles, you know, but now they see things in a different way, hopeful, you know, that when this ends, you know, things, they, they have seen growth, actually, that's what I'm trying mm-hmm. to say. Mm-hmm. They have seen growth, growth personally and also with them as a couple. So that's actually is, you know, brings to me, you know, as a minister brings hope in the sense that listening to the people of God and encouraging them with prayer and, and the way that we can listening to them, encouraging them to talk about it and, and look into Jesus, that he wants us to give us his joy and his peace. That's the way we just kind of help overcome, and especially people who have lost their jobs and, and they find themselves in a very difficult situation, um, to wait in hope for the Lord's hand and also um, to grow and take that opportunity to grow in their faith. I do think, too, that, uh, you know, along the, the lines the bishop's saying, uh, what he's saying is that this is not only true of the individual family, but the family of the church, in, in as much as, you know, will people come back again? Will they not come back again? Are they being starved of their, their the Eucharist? Are they uh, this, that, and the other thing? And I, I do think that many of the very things that the bishop said about uh, the experience of his own family members and many other families, too, I hope that spiritually uh, and sacramentally even, uh, this can be an occasion for some sorting out and, and thinking and praying that will hopefully lead people to have a deeper appreciation of their faith rather than less, but that remains to be seen. Let's take a look now at our Gospel reading on this first Sunday of Lent. This Gospel is taken from Mark's Gospel, 
the very first chapter. After the gospel is dramatically presented, then we'll talk with both of you, Archbishop Blair, Bishop Betancourt, and ask for your thoughts and your spiritual advice on this. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan. He was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So on this first Sunday of Lent, what is this gospel saying to us? Well, this is the traditional gospel for the beginning of Lent with the temptations of Christ in the desert. We hear uh, from each of the evangelists depending on the cycle of the, of the readings in the lectionary. And this one is a very uh, concise short version from uh, Mark. The punchline is really uh, how the gospel ends. Uh, this, is, this is what Christ came to preach. Repent and believe in the gospel. And over the course of the years as a bishop and preaching, I, I always stress that so much, that that remains the fundamental message. What Christ said to, when he opened his mouth in his ministry is what we are called to do as priests, as bishops, and also it's, it's what we have to not only say it, but take it to heart in our own lives and encourage other people to do the same, to repent and believe, to turn away from sin and to embrace, to put on the new life that comes to us in Christ through the sacraments, through our membership in the church, especially through the Holy Eucharist, and in all those ways to live a life in Christ. During Lent, of course, we have an opportunity every year to pick ourselves up and renew that uh, mm -hmm. response to that call. Uh, to pray about it, to think about it, to do acts of uh, penance and charity and prayer that will deepen it for us. Uh, so it's a very appropriate beginning for Lent. Bishop Betancourt, Mark tells us that the Spirit drove Jesus out into the desert. What kind of a spirit? Was it demonic because Satan then tempted Jesus? Is it possible that this same demonic spirit is alive and well, living among us, tempting us, causing division and chaos, bringing death and despair? for instance, with this pandemic today. Thanks, Father John. You know, here when we hear St. Mark saying that the Spirit drove Jesus into the desert, the, the Greek verb that is being used there, if we translate it, is that the Spirit cast, pushed, even expelled Jesus out into the desert. And it's to evoke the biblical image of um, those 40 years that the people of God experienced in um, the desert after the Exodus, mm -hmm. right? The desert in the Bible is always an image for the place of transformation, of change, right? Of anticipation, of a new life that is coming. So this is the Holy Spirit who, after the baptism, is pushing Jesus, not because Jesus doesn't want to go, but because Jesus needs to prepare for his ministry, as the Archbishop was saying, to be in contact with God, his Father, right? And then from there, listen to his voice, and then come up with a plan, right, which is the teaching of truth of the gospel. And we see in Mark that he doesn't, uh, like other gospels, mention specifically what temptations you know Jesus went through. But Mark wants to emphasize that even in the place of transformation, anticipation, change, and preparation, the enemy is still there, right? And um, with his insidious lies that you were saying, you know, it could be indifference, it could be insecurity. It could be many things, you know, especially for those who serve the gospel that can be there. It's the truth that every time that we, we prepare ourselves, like Archbishop was saying, 
with the penance, with the prayer, with the works of charity, listen to the voice of the Lord saying, repent and believe in the gospel. The enemy is going to be there trying to take us away from the place of transformation and change, right? The wild beasts that we hear that Mark mentions, there, there's also an image that comes from the Bible of the evils of this world that threaten the life, you know, not only physically, but the life of grace, the spiritual life of that one who believes in God and tries to abide by his law. So that's why we have, you know, even though we have the temptations there of Satan, the Lord also provides, like he did with Jesus, with the, the company of his grace and also with the company of the angels as we see it in the gospel. So as Archbishop was saying, the account in Mark's gospel for this Sunday is very concise and short, but has a lot of meaning for us Christians, you know, in the way that we should change our minds, repent, like Jesus said, and believe in the gospel, believe in the truth that I have prepared for you to learn and to develop in your hearts. I, I love that image of the the uh, desert as a place of transformation, you know. Yeah. Um, I, in my own experience in traveling, I've only been in a desert a couple times, and uh, it is a remarkable place. There's something about a desert that's really... Uh, more than just sand, uh, and then you think of in the Bible all the places that the desert played a, played a role. But uh, during Lent, you know, this idea of going into the a, a desert uh, to meet God, you know, a desert that's which means a place free of all the the things that clutter our life now. Uh, I think that that uh, that's a, a very good image to have of Lent and to try to to live that during these forty days. I, I really like that. that that's true. Un unclutter your life in Lent by going into the desert to experience God there. Let's talk a little bit about the nature of temptation, if, if you would. Temptation in our own lives. Uh, for instance, say I'm on a diet and should be losing weight to benefit my health, and I'm tempted to have that second punchki on Shrove Tuesday for Mardi Gras, okay? Was the devil behind that temptation? Is the devil behind every temptation? Well, no, he's not behind the temptation to have the punchki on Mardi Gras. He's behind the temptation to have it on Ash Wednesday. Okay. <laughs> well, I, seriously, though, uh, I mean, we talk about the world, the flesh, and the devil, all three. Uh, you know, uh, the, the world has its, the world meaning that unbelieving, because the world, you know, God so loved the world, but the, the unbelieving world is trying to bring us down, you know, trying to live only for it. Uh, the flesh, uh, we don't need to belabor that. We all know how weak uh, the flesh is and, and the many temptations, and then the devil as well. So I think you take all three together. Those are the things we have to, to resist through the power of grace that's given us by Christ to live a new life. You know, all those beautiful things in St. Paul about living a new life, being transformed by, by grace, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Following up with what the Archbishop, you know, was saying, I was thinking too that what he was saying before, you know, the effect of sin, you know, in the world and how, you know, at the very beginning in the book of Genesis, when the original sin happens, right, that beautiful life in the presence of God, then after the original sins, you know, re sin results into um, that for, for humanity, a weakened will, a clouded judgment, and then kind of the allure and the submission to our senses, you know. Combine that with the way that we see the enemies that the, the Revelation tells us, you know, uh, the world, you know, the flesh and, and the enemy and Satan. 
we see how then the power of grace needs to be needs to be promoted, let's say, through prayer and through conversion in our lives, right? How the gospel and how the word of truth of Jesus Christ and, and his redemptive work uh, that we just kind of reflect on during Lent, right? His passion, death, and then the resurrection has helped us to overcome all sorts of temptations from wherever they, they might come from. But it, it, it allows us, the season of Lent and what we're talking about, to, to kind of look at ourselves during this time, meet God in the desert of you know, Lent, and then from there reflect on where we're at and, and work towards, you know, being better Christians, you know, with the help of His grace, overcoming, you know, those temptations. Let's look now at some of the questions that have been submitted by our listeners. For instance, Damien from Wallingford submitted a question. Damien said, we recently celebrated the conversion of St. Paul at Mass. He is ranked among the greatest of Christ's apostles, but came to the Lord only after the Ascension. Is Paul, like the other apostles, considered a priest and bishop? I'm really glad to have Bishop Betancourt with us today because, you know, you recall, Father, we postponed this from another show because we did, yes. Archbishop, though I may be, I had to think twice about how to answer that. And as I expected, uh, Bishop Betancourt uh, has a great command of Scripture uh, and he, he has a very good, the, the, the proper explanation to give, so I'll, I'm certainly going to uh, look forward to him giving it. It's an interesting question, is it not? It's very interesting because we find in the Acts of the Apostles, right, that when Judas defected and then he died and Matthias was, you know, um, chosen, we see then that he was added to the group and then the College of the Apostles of the Twelve Apostles continued. Then we have God's plan in calling St. Paul to be the apostle of the nations, right? And then he himself, in most of his letters, calls himself an apostle called by Jesus Christ. So he asserts his authority in his ministry as an apostle because many times, you know, he was not acknowledged as one of the twelve. And that's one of the difficulties he experienced throughout all his ministry. First, that he was a persecutor of the followers of Christ. And second, that he might not be considered one of the ones who was with Jesus. In his letters, especially the letter, the first letter to the Corinthians, St. Paul, defending his ministry, he clarifies that for the people of Corinth, right? He was called directly by Jesus Christ. He received what was handed, you know, by the apostles through Jesus Christ, which is this tradition, right? He was called directly by the Lord, and that was the Lord's plan, which we see in the Acts of the Apostles, that the rest of the disciples, called apostles, acknowledged, you know, in that visit that St. Paul paid to Peter in Jerusalem and stayed with him all those two weeks. About being a priest that actually came with the call to be an apostle, right? St. Paul says in the very letter, you know, that very letter of 1 Corinthians that he's handing on what he himself received from Jesus Christ. And then he sees that is the institution of the Eucharist. You know, that on the night the Lord was betrayed, he took bread and said the blessing, all these things, right? So that actually is a text that we can use uh, or consider as a, a proof that when Jesus called St. Paul and he received that laying on hands from the apostles and then he was sent, you know, with Barnabas, that the priesthood was also, the priesthood of Jesus Christ was also bestowed on him. Well, thank you for that explanation. I appreciate it. One last question that I'd like to get to is the fact that in previous years, the Archdiocese of Hartford has promoted and encouraged Catholics to go to confession during Lent, and parishes made the Sacrament of Reconciliation available every Monday evening during the season of Lent. 
But all that's changed with COVID-19. Has it not, Archbishop? Yes, it has. Once again this year, we're not going to have the Monday night confession program because we can't afford to have people massing together on one day for confessions. But I know that confessions go on using the proper distancing and the protocols we've established. And I've simply told our pastors to do their best to encourage confessions during Lent and to try to accommodate them as best they can. But you know, many of the things that we said last year are still in place about these matters. We just have to, uh, to, do, to do our best. Well, we've come to the end of our time together, and I thank you both for being with us. Before we close, Archbishop, can you conclude with a final prayer and a blessing? Having the pleasure of having uh, Bishop Betancourt with us uh, today, and I, I'm going to ask him if he'd be so kind as to give the final blessing for this program. Wonderful. Heavenly Father, we commend ourselves to you as we begin the season of Lent. In the grace and love of your Son, Jesus Christ, help us go through this desert of this 40 days with hope in your providence and with a zeal of listening to your Son's voice. Move our hearts during these difficult times to be more understanding, patient, and outreaching to others, especially those who are suffering. Help us, with the protection and intercession of the Blessed Mother, to be faithful to you, to your Son, and may your Holy Spirit abide in us always. In humility, in joy, we want to persevere in your love. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Both of you have blessed us so much by both of you being on the show today. And it's a great way to begin the first Sunday of Lent. Perhaps we can do it again. What do you think, Archbishop? I think we should do it more often. I remember when the bishop first came to the Archdiocese, there were some occasions when we had a joint program. Uh, we can do more programs together. We look forward to that Thank in you. the future. Thank you both and enjoy Thanks this. Thanks for the John. Thank you.